I'm a big fan of evolution and evolution. The changes take tend to take place in steps rather than small or kind of a straight line incline. It's called a punctuated equilibrium. We're calling what would be called a punctuation now, which is when multiple change or diffusion of innovation curves are all superimposed to cause a big change. So I kind of call this the great new balance. Welcome to Shaping the Future of Healthcare from Siemens Health and Years, the podcast where we talk with renowned experts from around the world about the impact they're making on the future of medical technology. Today, Managing Board Member Dr. Christoph Sindel interviews Dr. Dieter Ensman, Chair of the Department of Radiology at UCLA. They began the conversation talking about how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting California and Dr. Dieter Ensman's view globally. Let's hear what they have to say. Let me go uh, straight into this dialogue. How is the COVID-19 situation developing in California during the last weeks? And I think also with your profound international experience and network, how do you see this globally? Well, as you know, in the United States, um, the pandemic was most severe on the East Coast and the West Coast for some time was spared. But more recently, um, the virus has you know moved west. So the Sunbelt states in California, that's Florida, Texas, Arizona and California had a more recent spike uh, in the number of uh, cases. That's increased for several weeks, but it appears now the most recent data is that all of these states have uh, hit a peak, and actually now there's a decrease in the number of cases. The number of deaths is a lagging indicator, but that also seems to be coming down. So it seems that we're on, on a downslope. I mean, that's, uh, let's say, good news in this uh, situation. How is it in terms of uh, hospital occu occupation? Do you feel at UCLA that, uh, you know, many patients are, uh, let's say, Uh, coming still and uh, are on ICU and so on? Or is this, uh, let's say, balanced? Well, as you know, hospitals are in different regions in uh, California and in Los Angeles, and they have a little different experience. So for UCLA, we actually never saw this large surge that was predicted. And I think that actually occurred in New York. We had a fairly level experience, and that is the number of COVID patients in the hospital and number of ICU patients has been relatively flat and more recently has actually gone down. So in terms of the percent of beds uh, being occupied by COVID patients, it's maybe 10%. Mm -hmm. So we've never really experienced a huge influx of those patients. The, the ICU at this point maybe had at most had 50 patients. Now it's down to about 30. So uh, mm -hmm. we're on a downslope in terms of severity of the disease, at least it is, as it involves UCLA. Thank God. That's uh, good to hear. Yeah, Talking about so-called elective procedures, yeah, and we talk about this actually globally, yeah, treatments of non-COVID-19 patients uh, have been often postponed. So according to the OECD, and it's a striking number, 28 million elective surgeries across the globe may be canceled during the 12 weeks of peak disruption during the pandemic. How is the situation at the moment from your perspective? 
Well, again, our preparation uh, reflected the experience on the East Coast. And to some extent, I think we probably ended up overreacting a bit. The hospital was shut down. Elective, all elective procedures were um, canceled for quite some time, several weeks. Uh, and the surge, as I mentioned before, never really occurred here. We never saw a huge influx. The reason for canceling elective patients, obviously, was to make sure you had enough hospital capacity that if there was a large influx of COVID patients, that would be prepared. That never happened here. So probably six to eight weeks ago, we opened up again and all the elective procedures were um, rescheduled. And for us, several patients came back. Obviously, during that time, some other hospitals that did not shut down as completely uh, took care of those patients. So now we're catching up, and in some instances, some of these procedures are actually now at over 100% or pre previous volumes. So we are catching up. That's interesting that you're saying it, because uh, when we look into our utilization data uh, as much as we can, I think it's interesting to see exactly what you confirmed. The regular, the routine care patients are getting back, and utilization is getting back to normal. Yeah, So um, that's also encouraging. Have you seen uh, increase of uh, mortality and morbidity because of the delay of elective procedures in general? Or how do well, you see this? Well, number one, I don't have the data that would give you kind of population statistics of, you know, the impact of delaying elective care. We have noticed that some of the patients that are coming back are, uh, have a higher intensity. They're sicker than they were before. So, Delaying some of the care did have an impact on the patients that do come back now. We did notice that in terms of tracking our volume, imaging tests and to some extent treatments that were oncologic or cancer-related, those did not drop as much. Cancer patients weren't as concerned about the COVID virus in terms of balancing that risk versus their cancer treatment. So we noticed that... Um, in the oncologic domain, the decrease in volume was less. I see. Let's say looking into the the future, I mean, how can this be avoided when we assume for a second that another pandemic would come over us? Would you agree that, um, you know, we should stick to teleservices? I mean, we have seen a huge surge of, you know, teleconsultation, in particular in the U.S., right? I think you have also uh, established new hygiene concepts, testing strategies for employees and patients. I think you manage the patients now differently. Would you recommend to stick to this going forward in order to be prepared for the next pandemic that also regular patients can uh, get medical services? Well, most of us have not experienced a pandemic, so this was kind of a new experience for most right. of us, the entire team entire enterprise. I mean, you're familiar, more familiar than we are in terms of the, what I'll call the learning curve or experience curve. And that reflects kind of the decreased cost per unit, given the fact that it, the more you produce, you know, the uh, lower the cost. In this case, having learned, we've learned multiple lessons and we've done some after action reviews. Next time around, I think this, the response would be much more nuanced. I think in this case, it was I wouldn't say full panic, but there was a, a certain level of panic and fear. Mm -hmm. I think the next time around, that will be less of a factor. There's an old saying, all models are wrong, but some are better than others. 
Mm-hmm. I'm sure by now that, you know, we will have much better models for this kind of pandemic or infectious disease next time around. Mm-hmm. I'm quite sure that for UCLA, we would not shut down completely. We probably would not have as drastic a cut of elective patients as we had. I think it'd be much more selective. So I think we learned a lot of lessons. Type of response that we had this time, I was would say was an overreaction to some extent. I think the next time we wouldn't do that. As we navigate SARS-CoV-2, we all want to know how much progress has been made in the race for a vaccine. It's also important to consider what immunity might really look like and the potential limits of immunization. Listen as they discuss these realities and some of the unknowns. Talking about overcoming the the pandemic, let's say, uh, let me talk quickly about vaccination. Yeah, I think in the last months, um, it's becoming more and more evident the world is working on vaccinations and we might be more or less closer to it already, right, when this is going to kick in. But it's still a discussion on a scientific basis. You know, antibody levels seem to drop fast in patients, right? I read that Chinese researchers indicated that antibody levels of asymptomatic people had dropped three months later to undetectable levels uh, in 40% of the cases. And a similar study coming from Germany, Schwabing Hospital in Munich, they found that the patients lost protective immunity within two, three months of recovery. Which role leader has a vacation against the background of uh, dropping antibody levels? Well, as you know, I'm only a radiologist. I'm not an immunologist. I'm not an infectious disease specialist. A couple of things have become clear. This virus is more than what originally thought was a respiratory um, virus, infectious virus. Mm. It attacks the ACE receptor, which is seen in multiple cell types in the body. So this turns out to be much more systemic disease than I think originally thought. The immunity, therefore, seems to be a bit more complex. There certainly is the antibody uh, immunity, but there's also appears to be a role for T-cell immunity. So I think the role of vaccination and the natural course of this in different uh, patients, i.e. different genetic uh, backgrounds, uh, is yet to be delineated. So I'm, it's a bit early to come up with generali- generalizations in terms of how the population or how individuals react to this and how long they have immunity. I think dealing with this um, pandemic will be both on the vaccination side, uh, but also as much on the treatment side in terms of individual drugs that can be used to treat the uh, treat patients. And as I mentioned before, the learning curve or experience curve has improved dramatically. So even the initial approach to treating patients on ventilators has changed dramatically. Mm. So I think there's a lot of clinical knowledge that's been developed and how we do, how patients do in the future really depends on a combination of these clinical lessons that were learned, the new types of drugs that are going to be used to uh, to treat it, whether it's from Dizavir or dexamethasone. And vaccination will be part of that, but I, I don't think it's going to be the cure-all or the, the magic bullet that people are waiting for to, you know, have this pandemic recede into history. This virus is going to be with us for quite a long time. As as painful as it will be, there will eventually be herd immunity. So, in fact, most of the population will have some protection against this virus. Yeah, makes makes sense uh, to me. Uh, what I find pretty unprecedented uh, in the current situation is, you know, how governments are dealing with it. They 
already scale up manufacturing. Interestingly enough, the vaccination is not available, but they prepare already for a mass uh, manufacturing, right? Um, they agree upon IP regulations and license sharing and so on, which in my point of view proves nicely that the pandemic is global. If there's anything we've learned from the COVID-19 pandemic, it's that investment in hospital infrastructure, staffing and medical technology is crucial. The innovation that this experience will continue to require must be supported. What is the current pace of innovation and what could it mean for the future? Let's hear what they have to say about the current willingness to invest in healthcare to accelerate innovation. Innovations drive the improvements of healthcare systems for the benefit of the patients, but innovations also need investments. How do you assess the current possibilities and willingness to invest uh, into healthcare? Well, I think despite the fact that many healthcare systems have um, had some decreases in revenue, I mean, there certainly is a financial impact when you shut down hospitals. But I still see, um, at least at UCLA, significant amount of investment in dealing with not just, you know, COVID and a pandemic, but in healthcare overall, I think. One thing I've noticed is that in, in times of stress like this, current trends get to be magnified or amplified or accelerated. So a lot of innovation that I think were already in place uh, have picked up the pace and have become uh, more front and center. I kind of look at this era. I'm a big fan of evolution and evolution. Mm-hmm. The changes take tend to take place in steps rather than small or kind of a straight line incline. It's called a punctuated equilibrium. We're calling what would be called a punctuation now, which is when multiple uh, change or diffusion of innovation curves are all superimposed to cause a big change. So I kind of call this the new, the great new balance. And again, these are not issues that are new, but these are issues that have been around with for a long time. We're just revisiting them. As you know, many things that we do are trade-offs. There's always a balance. So the ones that I think are being addressed again in a more deliberate fashion is centralization versus decentralization, human communication versus uh, tele or video communication, use of space, whether that's compact and efficient or a more spread out uh, space with regard to sanitation and uh, cleanliness. So I think there are a lot of trade-offs, and in each of those um, areas that need to be balanced, there are a number of innovations. And I think that's the exciting part, I hate to say, that use that term, but that's the really one of the interesting positive benefits of this pandemic is that innovations have really picked up the pace and is mm-hmm. causing us to revisit things that we took for granted or we, we call hand down or handed down wisdom. And many of those things are being challenged for the better. And I think the healthcare system overall, in fact, I think will be uh, much better off after we've adapted more to this pandemic and after it recedes in its severity. Yeah, it makes uh, perfectly sense. And uh, innovation is in our blood too. So I can only emphasize what you said. We experience the same innovation matters. And I think we should not simply carry on with old structures and processes anymore. I think my personal uh, learning or conclusion is innovations, you know, uh, got really heavily pushed by the pandemic. We will talk about digitalization in a minute. 
which is very exciting and which will help manage the pandemic in the future better. I'm excited about remote solutions, robotic solutions to keep distance to the patients, uh, but also productivity where I believe, you know, seeing all the patients now um, uh, suffering from COVID-19 and utilizing AI, artificial intelligence to accelerate, let's say, identifying the findings and documenting them. I think that these are heavy boosters where we do not talk about reduction in forces and through artificial intelligence. No, it's really the companion concept uh, we follow on and having a companion to get faster and qualitatively even better. Yeah. A question really, uh, let's say, uh, very much centered around you because uh, you are a worldwide recognized radiologist. What role does radiology play during this pandemic and how is it going to look like afterwards? Uh, I mean, getting back to my concept of what I call the great new balance, um, I think one of the things that trends that I think will pick up the pace is decentralization, decentralization. Obviously, radiology in the past has been heavily centralized in hospitals and major medical centers. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's going to be a move much more to decentralization. The tele part of the video part of the technology innovations allow patients to be taken care of outside of expensive centralized venues and more in the community. And it's something we're investing in. So I think that's one of the fundamental changes that will happen in radiology is that many of our services, both diagnostic and uh, treatment services, will begin being decentralized and offered in community venues, a wider distribution of venues, a wider variety of venues uh, at lower cost. And I think that will be um, a great benefit to the healthcare system as a whole. With regard to uh, innovations, I mean, obviously there are multiple different innovations. Some of them are operational, some of them are technological, some of them are medical. I think one thing that will be born out of this experience is there'll be a a more detailed or in-depth analysis of when humans actually need to get together personally and when a video-type conference like this uh, will suffice. Many meetings that up until now were taking place you know, in, in rooms with people being individually uh, present, I think many of those will uh, disappear. Tumor boards, I think, will, will undergo a major revamp in terms of how they're structured and run. But in some instances, and this is my personal bias, is certain types of innovation, it's really important for people to meet personally, to have a rapid interchange, to be able to read what I'll call nonverbal communication. So I think for some innovations, some scientific ones, I think we'll learn that the human interaction is as important as the information. So. There was an old book written on, you know, information as a social life. Uh, I think the social aspect of innovation will become a bit more apparent, given the fact that we may notice the difference when it's not there. And I think at this point, we're kind of noticing that some things are absent with this, you know, dramatic move to video conferencing and teleconferencing. I think we'll be there'll be some move to make sure that we move back to some human interaction where we think it's really important. Absolutely true, spot on. When I talk to people, they feel the same. You know, there is a difference between 2D and 3D. 
yeah so uh having this virtually or meeting and i also hope to meet you soon in person again and, <laughs> to be able right and it's interesting what you're saying innovation needs people meeting personally i think that's a very strong statement because you would always believe technology is helping you you're not keeping distance but it's just the opposite and i can really follow you and i like very much what you said and when i talk again to people to customers uh, employees many feel it's time to get back to personal meetings yeah because it's the non-verbal communication as you pointed out and so on it's uh, much more than you will be able to ever convey via virtual meetings there's no doubt yeah which is a nice segue into digitalization detail will digitalization artificial intelligence and other technologies render post-covid-19 healthcare systems more robust resilient and efficient against new pandemics well as i said before that when you have major events like this or crises like this trends that are already in place tend to accelerate so the Quote, the digital re revolution has been with us for years. Uh, I think it's just pandemic has speeded up some of the changes. Yeah, I do believe the healthcare will be much more robust. That's probably a side effect also of decentralizing. That means healthcare is distributed more in the population in different sites. That usually makes a, a network more resilient. The space, I think, you know, there'll be some issues with regard to how space is utilized. Interestingly enough, when you use the home, it's a little bit like Uber. We're beginning to use a resource that we haven't ever used before. We're using homes for healthcare on a vast scale. So I believe that, you know, I think in overall in, um, in networks, decentralized networks, they tend to be more robust the larger they are. And I think healthcare by becoming a little less centralized, at least uh, physically, Uh, it will make the system more robust. And as you know, I mean, AI is just, we're still in the early stages of AI. It's clearly going to have a, a significant, if not a massive effect on healthcare as a whole and certainly on radiology. By forcing us into this kind of televideo environment has, has speeded up the importance of that technology. So I think it'll actually undergo more rapid development because of this and it'll probably be assimilated into radiology a little bit faster. Yeah, I fully agree. And that's what we experience actually all around uh, the globe, uh, I have to say. But it's and nice what you said, using homes as a new resource for healthcare. It's the same on our side. We are using homes now as well for industry. Most of our meetings are now, uh, you know, virtual as well. Sometimes we meet in person now. Uh, it's a, let's say, healthy mix. But uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, the homes, you, you are much more at home now from other people than you were beforehand. Yeah, this is true, yeah. Just to add is, you know, when you see investment in healthcare and innovations, this pandemic, you end up drawing in resources they've not drawn in before. So the use of home in terms of space or technology, you're pulling in another resource into healthcare that really didn't exist before. You know, it's not an, it's not an obvious kind of capital investment, but it is certainly an investment in the healthcare system. Yes. If you say now, uh, let's use the, the decentralization of healthcare systems, yeah, having the patients more at home, using this as a new resource uh, in healthcare, has it an implication on technology you would expect from the vendors, like teleconsultation tools, video streaming, things like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think many of the things that were in the consumer environment, the social media, many of those things are now 
being transferred uh, into healthcare. I mean, the obvious example is the smartphone. Now we have the Googles, the Apples of the world, even Facebooks of the world, you know, having maybe more than a toe, maybe the entire foot already in healthcare. So I think the number of players, the diversity in the healthcare market, I think is increasing, which again makes it more robust. So now you have multiple new avenues of innovation that were not present uh, in the traditional um, healthcare market. And again, as I said, the the pandemic seems to have speeded this up a bit in terms of those new players entering the market and being uh, effective in the market. Telemedicine has become an important part of the conversation around healthcare accessibility. Through the COVID-19 pandemic, it's also become a safety measure that's helped to mitigate the risk of exposure. Dr. Ensman and Dr. Christoph Sindel discuss the opportunities for telemedicine and the benefits of decentralized healthcare in making this technology more accessible. Talking about centralized versus decentralized healthcare, how will the ratio of hospital-based, community-based and home-based care develop in your point of view? Well, again, yeah, I live in a, you know, in the Los Angeles market, so that's probably a little bit different. But I've noticed that a couple of things. One is when we looked at some statistics of clinic visits versus video visits versus telephone, the ratio actually has changed a bit, but it's now kind of stabilized. So the ratio is about two to one in terms of in, in-person visits versus video visits, but obviously the video visits have increased. Mm-hmm. The telephonic visits have actually decreased a bit. They're small. So I think in terms of that interaction, it's the video visit versus the in-person visit. In terms of where we take care of patients, um, at least the UCLA, there's a fairly significant shift of taking care of patients outside of the, uh, the hospital or the inpatient setting or even the centralized campus. Uh, we're spending a great deal of time moving practices into the community. So as the radiology departments, we've moved you know, major, what I call comprehensive imaging centers with all the technologies into the community. Literally, they fill up when three or four months, they tend to be full. And now we've expanded that to include angiographic systems. So now we're beginning to push interventional procedures uh, into the community. And that again is quite successful. In LA, you know, the distance and traffic is a problem. So you can improve the uh, access to healthcare dramatically by offering it in the community. So we've noticed, again, that there's a very um, interesting and rapid acceptance of IR procedures in the community, some of them actually quite sophisticated. I mean, we've done um, Y90 studies in the community, things that mm-hmm. normally you would say, you know, in the past have been inpatient procedures. Uh, we're moving them to the outpatient setting, you know, if we're confident that we can do it safely. I see. By the way, we have uh, also a project running in Germany. This is about heart uh, diseases and uh, patients suffering from it. And they are also at home. And, uh, you know, we could establish, uh, let me say, a data collector of vital data. And this is transferred to the hospitals. And doctors and nurses are monitoring these patients while they are at home. And if something happens, right, um, vital parameters would deviate. They're going to call, they're going to interact first remotely and would bring the patients then to the hospital consecutively if something seriously uh, serious would happen. It's correct what you are saying. There is a trend towards decentralization and uh, using as a new resource. It's absolutely correct. 
Today we've learned how the potential decentralization of hospitals and greater investment in telemedicine technology can create a more community-centered and perhaps more affordable medical structure. The ways in which we adapt through the COVID-19 pandemic may even provide the benefit of a more robust and resilient healthcare system. Thank you very much. Do you have one or two recommendations for our listeners during the pandemic, what they should consider or should do from your perspective to stay healthy? Well, there certainly is what I call personal interest to make sure that you take a personal care of yourself. I think there's a value in making sure that you not only are physiologically healthy, but also to make sure that in terms of your mental status or your attitude, that that remains positive. I think um, sometimes the news can be a bit negative because that seems to be what news concentrates on. But I look at it, I think um, there's many reasons to be optimistic. This will pass. And I think after what I'll call the acute situation and the current level of fear passes or recedes, I think there'll be many positives. I think radiology will come out stronger. I think our role in healthcare will become um, even a bit more apparent. We just simply say that stay positive. I think they're especially, and I think radiologists are resilient. I think things will work out well. I mean, this is a perfect uh, summary, and uh, you know that I'm an optimist too, so I couldn't agree more to what you what you summarized here. Yeah? Uh, Dieter, a big thank you. It has been an honor to talk to you, and thank you for being available in busy times, I'm sure, yeah. Looking forward again, looking forward to meet you uh, in person eventually, but thank you once again for your time. Well, Christoph, thank you for the invitation, and I look forward to getting together soon. And this concludes our conversation with Dr. Dieter Ensman and Dr. Christoph Sindel. A big thank you to them both for sharing their thoughts with us and a big thank you to you, our listeners. This has been another episode of Shaping the Future of Healthcare from Siemens Healthineers. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts, rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time.